Hi, this is Ruben Fleischer, and you're listening to Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello, Ilya. It is time for episode 48 of the Cinematography Podcast. Welcome, Ben. Hey, you are doing a pretty good job of trying to sound normal there. Yeah, I have a pretty nasty head cold and I probably will cause Ben and or Abby to edit out a bunch of coughs. Sorry in advance, folks. Ooh, and I think I had to take like two steps, two big steps back. Yeah, it's been it's been hairy. Hey, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Ryan Sloan, who was the first person to respond to the uh, Sal Totino episode that went live. What did he say? Uh, He wrote listening now with three exclamation points and then gave us the rock on devil horn hand sign, which a big, big popular one. Also, um, we have to give a a shout out to Seamus McGarvey because Seamus McGarvey also commented and gave us a a, uh, a little heart. The Seamus McGarvey commented on our. Yeah, well, you know, he's been on the podcast. I know, but it's just like, it's a big deal to me when Seamus McGarvey is listening to our podcast. Yes, Seamus McGarvey listens to the podcast. Seamus McGarvey is like one of the most awesome humans I've ever met. He's fantastic. And he wrote top man exclamation point. So yeah, if you, uh, if you people out there want to also be, uh, you know, shouted out or have uh, us acknowledge you in some way. Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, do something that, that, you know, do something for us because all those likes are legitimacy for uh, advertisers and people like that. Oh, now I have to silence my phone. So, uh, okay. It's totally true. And even though we are completely doing this for the money. That's right. I, the, the, the money that, <laughs> the money that I'm paying us. So. Ne- neither one of us has actually been paid anything to do this. So, uh, six years in six years, eventually, you know, the big bucks will start rolling in or any bucks, but, uh, no, but seriously, yeah. uh, any, uh, any love you can throw us means a lot to both of us every time. Cause you know, we put a lot of work into this as do, uh, our producer Alana and our editors, Ben and Abby. Yeah, and uh, I, I'd say Kays did some work too, but that was six years ago. But he'll never listen to it. Yep. He, it actually, uh, I talked to Kays this week and I asked if he'd heard about it. And he said, yeah, I heard you guys kind of troll me in every episode. And I think it's kind of funny. Yeah, well, I, I think he actually hasn't heard it. He heard me tell him that we troll him. So he was probably talking about you. <laughs> hey, uh, we got a great show today. We we do have a great show, but uh, before we launch into it, you had a topic. You had a thing. You had a, uh, you had something stuck in your craw you wanted to talk about. Yeah, we we... we you know, I got to say that the feedback's been good from the, from this so far. But if you, for some reason, think that if you, dear listeners, hear this and think that this is not germane, you're talking about the close focus segment that George Foyt named. That's for right. Us. That's exactly what I'm talking about. The close focus section, which we tend to start things off. There's seems to be sort of like uh, undercurrents and activities and topical stuff going on. But one thing that is not topical, which I think has been going on for possibly as long as I can remember, is that there are some cinematographers, camera people, DPs out there giving everyone a bad name. Have you have you heard of this? I mean, sure. Sure. Okay. But then you you might make the case that there's just always been some some bad people out there, some I bad think actors. There are bad people in every job imaginable at all times. Okay. So that airplane pilot, you might actually be a serial killer. Uh or just a dick. Okay, just a dick. Cuz really that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about people out there who uh maybe they work in the camera crafts, maybe they don't, but they're just kind of a dick. You're talking about 
divas divas exactly they uh they got to have things their way and no other way no flexibility it's their way or the highway and that's it okay i can say this as a director i have never worked with a dp who i felt was being that way however um uh, walt lloyd who we're supposed to have on the show um is somebody who went to great measures to defend me and didn't care if it uh if it if if, if it, it harmed him if it rubbed the producers a little raw because he was protecting me and therefore the show that we were working on but i'm not talking about protectionism i'm not talking about like someone who's got a lot of experience and you can step up and say hey look i'm trying to fight for what's right here i'm talking about certain people who behave in certain ways that basically because they can get away with it and not because they're a decent human being well don't you think that any job that gives you the power because like a dp is sort of the 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 quarterback of of the film set sure and so basically nobody's going to do anything till the dp says we're going to put the camera over here and blah 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 you know put move that condor over there and let's refocus these lights and let's change this lens and so any position in life where someone's given that kind of power over let's say between 10 and 200 maybe god knows 500 people some some douchebags are going to arrive in those jobs eventually and they're going to be drunk on power eventually occasionally but i also think that it's uh these days it's rather unfashionable and i think people word gets around word gets around thanks to social media yeah i think so too but there is certainly in this industry has been a um a cloak of secrecy when it comes to some of these bad these bad behaviors, uh, particularly because people don't want to be blackballed. And if you're in a posi- position of power and you can essentially abuse other people for your own enjoyment, yeah, you, you know, I hope that it gets around and I hope those people don't get hired. But I keep knowing that they get hired. I know that they they well, OK, so I'm also going to throw one more thing out there. Yeah, throw it out, which is to me. Uh, and again, I am not a cinematographer, hmm. but what I imagine it's like to be in the head of a cinematographer. And and I've seen this happen, which is it's like, you know, a cinematographer, as we say, part plumber, part artist. The artist part of that person, when, when they need to bring the art up, is when you're lighting a scene or setting up the camera or whatever. And this requires absolute concentration. And this requires uh, uh, teamwork from the uh, the grips and the and and the electrics and and all that stuff and 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 there's a lot of thinking that has to go into it and uh add to that that you've got an ad checking in with you on a regular basis constantly constantly how much longer how much longer how much longer how much longer because that ad is trying to get through that day and the director sometimes also uh i can say this for myself sometimes the director is also like Hey, uh, how much we just l- got to get it done. Yeah, I, I need I need to get this shot done. And, uh, you know, it's not the most unusual thing that something that is not the the top priority of the director ends up taking 45 minutes to set up because a, a slight miscommunication happened and you thought it was going to be 10 minutes. And then suddenly 10 minutes is 40 minutes and, you, and you're just kind of riding it out at that point. And, uh, you know, and, and you're imagining like, okay, in those 40 minutes, I just lost two other setups I was going to, I was planning to do today and blah, blah, blah. So I sort of feel like you're a painter and you're, you're, you're standing in the sunflower field and you're, you're putting some oil on your brush and you're painting it, except every three seconds, someone comes up and goes, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer? And it, and, uh, it's got a grade on your nerves. Uh, I'm sure, uh, sure. But there are some people who 
that's that scene's already lit. That stress is already gone. They they have no pressure on them whatsoever. But I hope it, to be one of those people one day. <laughs> but some people are really easygoing and they're unflappable. When something comes up, it's like they they approach it with good humor. And we've had many of those fantastic, fantastic, wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and say on the show, 100 percent of the DPs who've come on this show are all the great DPs in there. The wonderful they, people. They, they are 100 percent are without exception. Without exception, but. I'm going to say that well, I know that there are others and they we've specifically avoided them from the show, maybe, but uh, that they're a little bit of a diva. They would rather do something for pretense than actually. Well, it, it, maybe it's affectation and pretense versus actual practicality. Mm-hmm. It's a stroke to their own ego. And I, I kind of feel like and we can get into this for for our, our next banter. But uh, I think that there is some technical choices that are made because it's like this is what the big dog would do. And I'm the big dog, so I'm going to do this, whether or not it's actually the right choice for the story. They're going to make the case that, oh, it is the right choice for the story. But in the reality is it's something that's expensive and it serves their ego and it doesn't serve the story. And that's why Freddy got fingered with shot in IMAX. <laughs> Never saw Freddy got fingered. And I'm pretty sure it was not IMAX. Pretty sure. <laughs> but not 100 percent sure. Anyway, Ilya. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so who do we have on the show today? We have the fantastic, wonderful... Uh, Ruben Fleischer. Can I tell you how jealous I am that I wasn't able to conduct this interview? Really, you should have conducted this interview in that you were a director, and I thought you would have had a lot to talk about the director of Zombieland and Big Time and Venom, and now Zombieland Two coming out in about Double Tap. Yeah, Zombieland yeah, Two, yeah. Double Tap. I think it's uh, October eighteenth, so yeah. it's like really, really soon. This episode will be out before then. So if you were here listening to the sound of my voice, you should run, not walk, to the theater to see Zombieland Two, Double Tap. And here he is, Ruben Fleischer. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Uh, I'm very pleased to have director Ruben. Well, I should actually start over. I'm very pleased to have director, producer, executive producer Ruben Fleischer on the show today. Yeah, don't box me. <laughs> yeah, you're a hyphen it there. You got you got a, you got a few different things going on. So uh, we met what 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah, it was a long time ago. And uh, and I'm really glad that we we kept in touch, and I've been in, enjoying watching your uh, your career blossom and flourish. And uh, I had a I had a inkling you were going places when you showed me your first stop motion animation uh, <laughs> music video. It's really really impressive, man. And I am I love that it is still on YouTube, and you can go go see that. So uh, do you uh, do you ever miss those er- early days of uh, DIYing it, or you no? Know, you're 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 happy today. No, that was my favorite time, actually. Um, it's funny because the way I became a director was I was an assistant to a director named Miguel Arteta on a couple of independent films, Chuck and Buck and The Good Girl. And after working for him, that was that was how I decided I wanted to become a director. I, I didn't really know what it was prior to that. And so after I stopped working for him, I just started making my own stuff, short films, music videos. And I assumed that like, you know, very quickly I'd be offered feature films and television pilots and that's certainly not the way it went <laughs> well the world wasn't your oyster the red no, carpets didn't just roll out in front of you <laughs> i couldn't get anyone to watch anything um but so i i was like just shooting 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 as much as i possibly could but so stressed because i was digging myself deeper and deeper into debt and just didn't know that it was gonna all work out and i remember complaining to miguel one day about how stressed and bummed I was and he said just just enjoy it because it's all gonna work back it's all gonna work out and someday you'll 
back on it and, and, and this will be a really special time. And he was so right because it was this just kind of like unbridled creativity where I, I didn't have big pictures. I was just focused on making each individual little thing. I was doing the very best I could with the limited resources I had because we were making videos for like, you know, two grand. And my first video, my first Gold Chains video was a $50 music video, you know, and that grew to be like a $2,000 music video. And then that got to be a $3,000 music video. And so I was just grinding it out. I mean, the one that you referenced, Nada by Gold Chains, was uh, something we did for like 500 bucks. It was just me and my best friend from college, like in his house for a weekend, just making a stop motion animated video, cutting up magazines and moving all the pictures around and yeah like looking back on it that was the funnest times because it was just so pure just doing it uh for nothing other than just the love and learning and growing as a, a filmmaker and not really thinking about anything other than that well um the downside of that that period of course was the credit card debt yeah that was the <laughs> yeah. and, and hey uh, uh you know uh we know we know some people in common uh my my former uh, camera pa as someone you've worked with a lot as a as a dp and has done uh in, incredible work and uh I, I love him to death although i've been a bad friend and out of touch damian acevedo i mean did you do the dj format with him way back when or was that uh the, yeah i mean damian and i worked together on pretty much everything for my whole career like over you know we started in 2001 or 2002 we met I had you know one of my first ever paid jobs was shooting a remote piece for Zach Galifianakis short-lived TV show Late World and Damon was just the random shooter that they assigned me um, and I was like a young dude aspiring to make stuff and I was like hey want to do a music video and I was like cool I would shoot music videos and so uh, we, we <laughs> that's pretty much how I think all those conversations went back then I was like you want to make a music video yes I do <laughs> exactly and so I did this music video for a band called the dismemberment plan from Washington DC and it was yeah like a three thousand dollar budget and Damien I think flew out on his own dime he couldn't have gotten paid very much and I, I later found out that he had missed his son's birthday to be there with me oh my god yeah and he um he and I from that point on we just kept shooting stuff um basically everything all my early music videos my short films my commercials like the first ever commercial I ever shot which was in London I got them to fly him to shoot it and it was the first time he'd been out of the country, which was really cool for him. Nice. Now he travels nonstop. But yeah, I'm he's just sure. an immensely talented person uh, who was a great collaborator. And my, you know, my greatest regret, but my also my greatest hope is that someday we'll be able to make a movie together. Uh, I think we've done three television pilots together, yeah. two of which that got picked up. Like I saw just, his name on the Superstore. Yeah, uh, he super, shot the yeah. Superstore pilot, yeah. the American Housewife pilot, and then I did a... A pilot that didn't go that he shot but he's just there's no greater collaborator just in terms of generosity creativity he's like the most chill dude ever on set just brings great ideas and uh yeah i just i'm so grateful for everything he's done to help me with my career well, I, I'm sure that's a, it's been a really symbiotic relationship, too. I'm sure that, uh, you, you know, he's also really glad that he got to do all this fun stuff and go on the, these cool rides. But uh, all right. So uh, this uh, next question comes to us from uh, Adam Beck DP on Instagram, which uh, he asks, what do you look for in a cinematographer? 
I'll, I'll phrase that another way. If you were like in a laboratory and there's all kinds of things that go into, uh, you know, a, a great DP, you know, it could be personality or talent or, you know, what what elements make up a, a great DP? I'm sure like talent, but the, the other big thing that people always say is attitude or like, you know, willingness. I mean, this guy, you know, Damien was willing to miss his son's birthday. Uh, that's you can't get someone who much more willing than that to like jump into the fire or go into battle with. Yeah. yeah but beyond that, Damien also just brings so many ideas to the table. Um, he's incredibly creative. I actually think he'd be a great director. He, I mean, Damien's almost the embodiment of what I would say is like a great uh, partner just cause he's always focused on, the project he's always trying to make it better he's really invested no matter what 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 it's for whether it's like a commercial uh, that neither of us really care that much about we still you know our names are on it and we want to do a great job or you know something that's a real passion project so for me it's like bringing ideas to the table having the ability to help me uh, if sometimes my ideas aren't good and steer me in a better direction he you know, I'll look to a DP for performance notes. Like, what'd you think? Like, you know, did we get it? And if they say, yeah, yeah, let's go. Like, uh, you got it. You got it. Yeah. yeah. And, and especially when you have that relationship with someone and you trust them, it, it, you know, it really makes a big difference. But then I think, you know, in terms of going on to features, when, when I did my first film, Zombieland, I made sure that I was the least experienced person on the set. And, Prior to that movie, I had never shot anything with any action or a gun in it, and that movie's full of zombie battles. And so I was lucky to have a DP named Michael Bonvalon who had shot tons of hours of television for J.J. Abrams and had done like Alias and 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 those types of shows. And so he was really uh, experienced. And so I think in my feature career, I've tried to always work with people who are just extremely experienced and as the scale of the movies grew having you know the likes of Jess Hall, Dion BB, Maddie Lipatique and most recently Chung Hoon Chung you know by my side it really allowed for you know just like people could who could help steer me in the right direction and not make rookie mistakes and manage their crews and make our days and be efficient and just when you have all the pressures of a studio and you know, actors with egos and everything else, having somebody who just holds down the fort and just, you know, you're covered uh, is really important. Yeah, I think that the uh, in addition to talent and attitude and everything that the maybe the most important aspect of a good DP that gets overlooked is resource and asset management, human resources, you know, making sure that uh, you guys are getting done what you need to get done. And uh, also how to hold it all together when it seems like everything's falling apart so yeah. as a producer you're probably very familiar with the uh the old expression of um uh being a producer is exactly like riding a bicycle except the bicycle's on fire uh you're on fire everything's on fire and you're in hell so, <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah i mean um i definitely know that you know as a director you know i i made my first film 10 years ago and i've made I guess now five. So I make on average a movie every two years, whereas Mm -hmm. a DP probably makes, you know, a good working DP makes two or three movies a year. And most of the time they're older than me. So they've gotten that many more years of experience in their belt. So they just have so many more tools at their disposal and they've been in these situations and 
when you have people like Dion and Maddie who have shot some of the world's biggest movies, you know, the experience that they bring to the table is uh, really, really helpful. And that can be dealing with producers, that can be dealing with actors, that can be, you know, thinking three steps ahead in terms of the day, that can be rigging, you know, working with the rigging crew to make sure that when we come into the set the next day that it's all lined up. But um, yeah, I've just been really lucky to work with very, very talented and experienced people. Hey, well, let's, uh, you, you brought up Zombieland. I think that actually, that's actually a really nice spot for us to talk about some, uh, you know, some of the stages of your career. But prior to Zombieland, you'd been doing uh, television, some uh, reality type of stuff. How do you, how do you uh, reinvent yourself? I know you're a director, but how do you reinvent yourself into feature director? How do you come to be attached to that project? How does that move forward? I, um, had always aspired to movies, but yeah, I, I had done shorter form stuff, music videos and commercials. And then I got into this weird reality show, Robin Big, that I just kind of like met these two guys on a weird road rally across Europe. And I ended up developing a TV show with them that ended up being successful. So I got kind of sidebarred in this reality thing for three years, the whole time aspiring to do features. Um, and so in order to kind of push that forward, I I wanted to do some short films, and so I had a Burger King commercial. Pretty sure it was Burger King. It might have been McDonald's. That was shooting on a Saturday with my friend Damian Acevedo. And so I said, you know, if you're shooting on a Saturday, that means you don't have to return the equipment till Monday. So that Sunday, let's shoot a short. And so I I talked to some people about who who's a a good person to shoot a short with and there's a guy named Nick Thune that was an up-and-coming comedian uh, whose stand-up was super funny and and he and I kind of tossed some ideas around and took an idea from his stand-up and kind of expanded it into a five-minute short. What's that short called? It's called Phone Tag. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it was, uh, we shot the whatever commercial on the Saturday. The production company gave everybody like a kit rental that was basically their Sunday pay we kept all the equipment and being a Jew, I wasn't aware of the fact that that Sunday was Easter Sunday. And so all these people had to work on Easter Sunday to shoot my stupid short. Um, but it was with Nick and, um, this girl that auditioned for the Burger King commercial, but didn't get it. But I thought she had a special something. So I asked her if she'd be in her short. Her name was Olivia Munn before anybody yeah, knew Olivia she, Munn. Yeah, yeah, before she was. Uh, so it's Nick and Olivia in this like cute little, five minutes short that Damien shot. Um, and so we did that for, but it was kind of like early days of YouTube, but even so to the point where Nick then was like, my brother's friend works for this website called YouTube. Like we could put, you know, they're like they're going to post video. We could put it on there. And so we put it on YouTube and it's very early days when there wasn't a ton of stuff. And I got like a million views and very short amount of time. And so off of that, we got a deal with Comedy Central to do like three more shorts with Nick, you know, because he was this up and coming comedian. Uh, So we wrote three more shorts. Damon shot them all. The first one was on film 35 because we were using the commercial stuff. All I had to pay for was the processing. I think we even had extra film. And so the short didn't cost it. It cost me three grand to do the first short. But then these extra ones, Comedy Central gave us forty-five grand to do three shorts. So that was like a pretty substantial, you know, yeah, budget. Catered. You felt you found like you you got a real budget now. To, yeah, to, it was to, great. I mean, yeah. obviously, we always are going to try and do as much as we can for that money. But it, it meant we could actually pay a crew and like you know, as small. It was shot on video. The rest of them, I think we shot on XL One or 
you know, basic digital format. I can't even think of what it was. But um, we're, we're a pretty non-technical podcast, despite being the cinematography podcast. <laughs> we, we, we do. We talk about art, craft, and philosophy. But if you ever want to go really deep on tech, we can we can do that. But really, yeah, you, I, don't, I can't, you, don't I, struggle. Don't struggle. I'm pretty to, sure yeah. we shot on an XL one with like wow. an adapter. Yeah. To put on film lenses, like, do you remember when you could put anamorphics on a XL one? Oh, yeah. uh, do I recall correctly that you owned a GL one too? I had a VX one thousand. VX one thousand. Yeah. That was it. I remember. That's you- why I shot like all my early videos on, and I operated half of them myself. But um, but yeah, for this one, I think we shot an XL one with an adapter, so we could put film lenses on it, which gave it a cool look. Nice. Which Damien, uh, you know, was a proponent of. But I did this uh, short called Lobster with Nick. About him and his relationship with the with the lobster, his best friend. Like he was gonna cook it, and then he like fell in love with it, and then they have like a great day together. And so I had these four shorts that were kind of like my reel, I guess, to get more narrative stuff. And the incredible thing is that like yeah, the head of Sony saw my little lobster short and somehow was willing to give me twenty million dollars to go make a a feature film. I I don't even do I recall correctly that was Amy Pascal. Yeah. That, that that like doesn't happen. That doesn't that doesn't <laughs> happen. But here you you are you that, that happened to you. Yeah, so, no, it's congr- it's true. It I really mean, that that changed your life. I mean, there was other things too. I mean, I read the script. I had to give feedback on the script, give notes on the script that they liked. Like the script didn't really have an ending. I pitched the whole concept of the third act to them, and so we rewrote this. So it wasn't just like oh, she saw a lobster short and was like oh yeah, this guy should be making movies. But I think it was like. Uh, you know, sometimes if you've just done short form 30 second spots or music videos, they're like, yeah, but can you direct actors? And, it, mm-hmm. you know, does the comedy play and da, 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 da. And I think because the shorts were pretty funny and Nick's such a funny guy and, and there's emotion and there's style that brought Damien brought to the table. And, you know, the production value, despite being su- such limited budgets, we made sure that we made as we made it look as professional as we possibly could. And. And yeah, it was that that uh, that convinced him. Well, uh, Zombieland has a it has a real point of view. It has a real perspective, and basically because um, the only thing I'd really seen was the, your Gold Chains video before Zombieland. I have kind of felt like that is, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like you have a real style and voice that comes through that, and I see elements of that in everything I've, I've seen since that you've done, and I would say humor. Uh, there's definitely there's definitely a, a, a theme of humor that goes through your work. If you were to say that you've got a style, how do you, how do you classify what what the Ruben Fleischer style is? Well, it's interesting because you know now that I've done a handful of movies and some have had more success than others, I think I've actually thought a lot about like what I'm good at and what what I where I should focus um, moving forward. But I grew up watching you know all the classic '80s. Movies like Blues Brothers and Beverly Hills Cop and Die Hard and Indiana Jones. Those were kind of my touchstones. Um, So I think that real, the target of action and comedy together is kind of where I've landed and what I like doing the most. You know, Zombieland was certainly action comedy, I think. Definitely. It had an undead factor that the other movies didn't. But it, it was, you know, it was really about... You know, because even I'm not a big genre guy and like I didn't grow up loving zombie movies. But when I read the script, I actually when I first this is before I even had a career, I was like, hey, I don't know if I want to do a zombie movie. And my agent at the time was like, uh, you need to read it again because like this is a big opportunity. and You need to figure out how to 
go after this. And so when I read it, I was like, oh, this is vacation, but there's zombies all around. It, it's but it's totally basically is. a a family road trip movie and vacation is one of my favorite movies. So like, I was like, Oh, I get that movie. You know what I'm saying? And so it was really easy once I like put in the context of, Oh, the zombies are just like the window dressing, but ultimately it's about this family and a road trip. And I love road trip movies. And so, um, so it was really easy for me at that point to kind of find my way in. And, and I think as a filmmaker, when, when it's comedy, I feel really comfortable. I love comedians. Like I was a huge comedy nerd seen so many hours of stand-up and just really like that's my favorite thing so it's a joy to get to work with comedians and figure out how to make things funnier funnier and work with them but then I also love classic action movies and and I was growing up as a music video nerd too I mean I always try and infuse style whenever I can into things like being such a fan of Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry and Chris Cunningham and you know people to that effect um, that, you know, I, I, I never had that creativity or that sort of inspiration that they have, but I always tried to, to find ways in. And so for example, the opening credits of Zombieland where we got to do that slow-mo yeah, that's fun. with, with yeah. the phantom and, and, and try and make it feel stylized was really, you know, satisfying and cool for me or doing the graphics on screen with the rules and stuff like that L- was limber the, up. Yeah. Yeah. Limber, like, limber. <laughs> that's awesome. uh, you know, I, I, it, that, that movie, uh, I, I do like zombie stuff and I have to say that I feel like that movie was very influential to a lot of other zombie stuff that's come oh, cool. after it. Like I look at the, I look at all those shots in the first season of walking dead and it's like, it's like, hello, first season of walking dead. It looks like they completely ripped this off from zombie lands, like all the freeway stuff. It looks, you know, of course it's, it's Georgia and Georgia, I'm guessing. So there may be actually similarly, you know, look but at the same time it's like i i saw you do that first i thought that was very That's cool nice to hear and and hey you know uh comedy i, I love uh if you're, if you're a comedy nerd you got to you got to do your first feature with bill murray that's <laughs> like and, yeah. and i'm assuming this is at the time where you had to have his 800 number like you didn't have an agent so that, yeah that, I, I think I, it's still the case but um yeah no woody woody and he had a relationship from kingpin so woody was oh, very course. instrumental and helping get Bill Murray in the movie. But yeah, that movie was just beyond a dream come true. I mean, working with Woody, Jesse, Emma, Bill Murray, like it I, was, it was incredible. I think they've all either won or been nominated for Academy Awards now, including uh, Abigail, Abigail Breslin. Exactly. She, she, they all, everyone, everyone in like your, your leads now, but like today have now been nominated or won or yeah, won Academy Emma's Awards. the only one who's got a trophy, but well, yeah, you know, it's, it, but, it, but, and, and good for her. So, yeah. and uh, okay. So, um, we we could talk about Zombieland for uh, for for the rest of this time, but I, I do want to move on. I mean, it was incredibly successful. I know it made a hundred million plus, and it had reportedly a, a relatively low budget of around twenty million. But uh, but but dude, uh, congratu- congratulations on that. I I heard that based on that success, you were offered all kinds of 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 big stuff, but you you didn't want you didn't want to do big stuff, and you wanted to to, to grow organically naturally you didn't want to didn't want to have the pressure of a hundred million dollar franchise on your on your plate is that is is that true yeah i mean i uh maybe not the wisest decision in retrospect but um yeah i mean i think whenever somebody gets a a nice first movie you get a lot of people excited and oh well, this could be the next guy and so i got a lot of big offers for things but i was just kind of like i don't know intimidated or just didn't trust myself enough and um, yeah, and, and I wanted to do a movie that was the, the challenge is that I'm not a writer, but like all the, my favorite directors are writer directors, mm. whether it's like uh, the Coens or, 
you know, Alexander Payne, David R. Russell, people like that, Wes Anderson. And so I, I wanted to do something like a little darker, weirder, edgier comedy to kind of like define myself as a director, as opposed to just being plugged into like a big franchise or doing a sequel or something like that. And so I, I made the decision to do 30 Minutes or Less, which is a movie I love and I'm really proud of and is super funny and has a lot of style, but it definitely didn't connect with audiences. And, uh, you know, going forward, you know, I've kind of learned in this new marketplace the value of, you know, both sides, like of being able to express yourself, but also, you know, when you have a movie called Venom, people are just going to show up all over the world. So, yeah, it was a it was a really fun movie to make. I got to work with Jess Hall. That was the only movie I've shot non-digitally. That was my only experience making a movie on film yeah. or film on film, I guess I should say. Sure. Uh, and so that was pretty cool. Um, we shot in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, I was kind of left on my own devices, which was really cool and just got to make the movie I wanted to make, which was, I'm sure, the opposite of what it would have been if I'd done Mission Possible or x-men or something like that where i'm sure there would have been a lot more voices and so it was really nice to have that kind of experience but at the same time after i made zombieland i thought whenever you make a movie uh it makes tons of money and everyone tells you how awesome you are and that was not the experience i had on 30 minutes or less so it was definitely a disappointment um in terms of i was really proud of the movie and audiences seemed to love it but it just didn't land Well, you certainly had the opportunity to do many more movies after that. That didn't uh, define your career, you, uh, you know, uh, box office success. And I'm, I think that certain movies certainly just don't find their audience at the exact moment that they they touch down. And I believe that probably uh, it probably did well in, in uh, after the factor. There was a it was a rental hit. There was still a rental market at that time. Now the rental market's yeah. all changed. So I mean, I'm proud of the fact that I mean, I think that. In that movie, Danny McBride, Nick Swartzen, Aziz Ansari, Jesse Eisenberg, and Michael Pena are as funny as they've ever been. And definitely Pena, especially, I think the character he created for that film is like one of the funniest I've ever seen. And so uh, I'm proud just because he's he's one of my favorite actors to watch in movies, and he's just so good in that film that it it just makes me laugh every time. Um, but yeah, it it uh, it's interesting, kind of like when you when you're not creating your own material and you're more dependent on what comes your way it's it's something i'm navigating now and trying to be more proactive in terms of developing material whether it's like a read a book or an article or there's a writer i really love i want to work with i'm trying to like guide the process a little bit more as opposed to just being beholden to what comes across my inbox sure um and and working with jess hall i'm uh, well that and film uh, all the rest of your movies were not were not on film. You, you were saying so. What was the what was that experience like? Did, was it wish fulfillment in any way, or or not so much? Well, the climax of the movie takes place with a flamethrower, and so we did a bunch of tests. We shot Zombieland on the Genesis, which was like a early uh, HD camera, and so we did a bunch of tests. And I liked HD. I'd only shot video because I came up doing independent stuff. You know post 2000 so like like we said i had a vx 1000 and i was really comfortable with digital like i never really got to do much film except for commercials um but it was all kind of transitioning as as i was coming up um but we did a bunch of tests with the fire and at that point the contrast ratio between the super night and super bright flames it just went to white for all the fire and so we did a test with a film and it looked great and so 
instead of just shooting the third act in film and the rest of the movie digital, we Jess was like, we should do all or nothing. And so we um, shot film for the whole thing. And I also kind of had the sense this may be my only opportunity to shoot film. And so I was excited about it. But yeah, as soon as the process started, I was just so frustrated because growing up shooting video, you're so used to looking at a monitor and seeing exactly what's being shot. And so to have to deal with the standard definition video tap, I just was constantly frustrated. Like I couldn't trust the frame. I couldn't trust the focus. Uh, like I would complain constantly when they'd have to do reloads, even though we all know that it doesn't take that much longer for film, but I would just be a baby about it. Um, and rollouts used to drive me crazy. Like, and so like, I, I'm, you know, I know like the greatest filmmakers, Nolan and Tarantino, whoever love film and are beholden to it. But I, I will say just never having had the privilege of it much. Um, I'm a much bigger fan of digital and, I, I don't see the point of film whatsoever. I, I don't know any uh, quote unquote filmmakers fans uh, fans of rollout or the the low resolution video tap. So it's uh, yeah that, that it's a it's a tough way to work. And I think we're all kind of spoiled these days by what you see is what you get. And that's a it's an incredible advantage to digital. And uh, you know we can we can have the whole uh, digital v film debate. But uh, I want to I want to move us along too. I want to talk about some of the. Uh, I think it's really fun. Uh, especially now knowing some of your backstory and knowing that you were uh, an assistant on Chuck and Buck to see then Mike White in uh, in Zombieland. And I'm assuming that, of course, you had a relationship. And so that's how he, he came into that part. And then, uh, you know, do I recall correctly that you were a production assistant on Dawson's Creek back in the day and then Michelle Williams all these years later in, in Venom? <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, you you uh, clearly uh, there's people who you uh, like and admire and you've worked with in the past and you bring them forward with you on, on the stuff that you're doing. Uh, OK, t- so so. Uh, and I don't mean to to j- skip over uh, Gangster Squad because I know you have like uh, you know you have other projects in there too too. And I do want to talk about uh, producing. And so I feel like it, actually this might be a nice moment to take a little bit of a detour before we go into Venom and talk about like uh, Unicorn Store and Superstore and basically anything named with store in it that you uh, that you've been working in. But yeah, t- tell me about uh, the, this other aspect of you. Tell me about your your producing hat. Um, for me. You know, when I moved to L.A., I originally moved here thinking I was going to do TV stuff. I didn't know quite what it would be, but my big dream was to be a television executive someday. And so after working on Chuck and Buck, I got a job as an assistant at DreamWorks Television, uh, assisting one of the the executives. And I quickly realized that is definitely not what I wanted to do. (laughs) was not the thing for you. No, because they just basically live in their office and all they have to do is talk to agents all day. And so that... After having had the thrill of being on set, I felt like that was more my speed. Um, but I do love TV, and it is kind of like, as much as I loved all those movies I referenced, I mean, the hours of television I watched as a child and you know shaped who, who I am and what my tastes are, especially when it comes to comedy. So doing TV was something that I always aspired to, but it's it's ironic but true that it was easier for me to get a feature film than it was for me to get an episode of TV. It's just a very small network of people. And it, it kind of wasn't until I'd made a couple movies that I was even able to do TV. Um, and it, it's so interesting that that was your trajectory. I mean, you, you did, you did have some MTV, you did have Robin big, you did have some that stuff, but to then come into scripted television, yeah, scripted yeah, network yeah. TV, I should say, I guess. Yeah. Reality is its own beast. But after, I guess it was gangster squad, because I basically, with Zombieland, 30 Minutes or Less and Gangster Squad, I made three movies in four years. And I just 
Yeah, it was back to back to back. Your head exploded. Yeah, yeah. And I then I needed a break, and also Gangster Squad didn't work that great, and so like I wasn't being offered the same kind of movies I was after Zombieland, and so um, I I was happy to do TV, and like basically catch my breath. Kind of, I got married. I like bought a house. I was like, okay, let me just like handle my personal life, which I haven't dealt with much for the last 10 years trying to build my career as a director. You did some adult things. Yeah, yeah. I grew up. And so then I um, had to deal with Fox and we did a pilot with Pena actually as the lead that didn't get picked up called The List. But during that period, I had a development deal. So my job was to produce and figure out writers and show ideas and all that stuff. And it was a, a huge learning curve as far as how you make TV. And after that first Fox deal, then I got a deal at NBC. And I, I, at that time, started working with a new partner whose name is Dave Burnett, who's an exceptionally talented young producer. And um, in our first season at NBC, we, we met Justin Springer, and, and he pitched us the idea for Superstore, which I thought was fantastic. And then, yeah, we, uh, we sold to NBC. He, he wrote the pilot script. Luckily, they picked it up. We cast it with America Ferreira and surrounded her with an incredible ensemble of really, really funny comedians. No, no kidding. That, yeah. is, that show is so much fun. So it, much fun. <laughs> it, it looks like it must, it must be fun to make, too. And I know I've worked on comedy stuff that was not fun to make. But I have to say that if I was to guess, it looks like everyone there is having a great time. It's like the, the best. best day of their life. So. It's the best. So I, yeah, they... I just saw them at Comic-Con last week, and tomorrow's our first table read for season five, which is exciting. Um, But America uh, is a great number one on the call sheet. She's just a great leader, an amazing woman. And she kind of set the tone in the pilot. Like, she would stay on set in between takes. I mean, in between setups, like if it wasn't hers, she'd still be there. She just was, like, really, like, inclusive, um, no drama. And that was awesome because we had a bunch, you know, two of the people on the show were working at restaurants prior to getting cast in that that show. And so she really just kind of set the standard and and, um, it was just very uh, collaborative and especially with comedy and improv, like you just want people to feel free and open. And so the pilot shoot we shot in an actual working Kmart, like in its off hours in Burbank. And luckily enough, it, it got picked up. And yeah, like 90 some episodes later, yeah, they're still at it. And, and, da- it's and really- Damien said a great look. It's a, The show's got a great look. It's it's a high key comedy look. But dude, it's not flat. It's incredible. It's a real it's a really it's a good looking show. And yeah, uh, he kind of defined the idea of uh, long lenses. Um, everything's shot on zooms like but not zoom active zooms like sure. we didn't lens. want to do like the office kind of mockumentary thing we we said it'll be observational handheld <coughs> long lenses but not anyone acknowledging the camera and so we always try and place foreground in every shot like you know the, at this point the camera guys have figured out a whole system so instead of putting on their shoulder they have those balls that you balance it on to give it like the effect of handheld and then they'll have C stands with like, you know, items from the store in the foreground just to feel a little bit of it instead of shooting through the aisle. But yeah, it's it's meant to be somewhat observational. And yeah, Damien deserves all the credit. Um, he set the look for setting the look of it. And I think I think it it does like that feeling of intimacy of like, oh, you're just watching these people live their lives and relate to each other contributes to like feeling a closeness to the characters and. 
Yeah, Damien deserves all the credit for that. I, I think also it comes through really for anyone who ever worked retail or anyone who ever worked in something like that. I, I, I have no idea if Justin ever worked in a in a superstore type of thing, but uh, I, I will tell you that I think I spent a lot of youth in places that felt exactly like that. So uh, that's that's uh, I, I think that it, it resonates for a lot of people that uh, at some point in their career went went through that. So. Um, Okay, so so producing is is like it's it's one of these things though that's that defines you. And if you're not going to be directing and working in the future world, television continues to be uh, continues to be a creative producing outlet for you. And that's uh, you got uh, you were just at Comic Con. You mentioned uh, do you have new stuff that you're promoting besides uh, besides yeah, Superstar. Yeah, we, we were there. I was actually at Comic Con for this other show called Stumptown, which is a new show that's debuting on ABC in the fall. That Kobe Smolders is the lead of, and Jake Johnson's in, and Michael Ely, and it's a really cool show based on a graphic novel called Stumptown, set in Portland about this um, female former military investigator who's kind of recovering from PTSD by way of like drinking and having sex and gambling, and just is kind of a mess. But she has—it's light. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it is. It's funny because she's funny, and uh, the writer Jason Richmond's really funny. But it's—it's—it's it's, it's a throwback to like Rockford Files uh, or Magnum PI. Uh, you know the classic '80s like Simon Simon, like those detective type shows. Riptide. Uh, Riptide. You name it. Like it, it, where it's like kind of these flawed characters that are somehow outside of like traditional PI uh, jobs. But what's cool is it's a, you know, we've never seen a woman do that. And Kobe is so funny and um, charming and, you know, great dramatic actress and incredible at action. Like there's some really cool action sequences. So it's a, it's a great just hour long procedural with like strong characters. And yeah, it's, it's surprisingly funny for, something that deals with like some heavier topics. Uh, all right. All right. So, uh, since we're, we're, we're wrapping up, I want to get to Venom. Uh, I loved Venom. I, it, I know it's, it's divisive. I loved Tom Hardy. I love Tom Hardy. I love the movie. I thought I love Maddie. I love all for me. I, I'm biased here. Everything worked for me. I, I thought it, I thought it was incredible. Tell me about making a Marvel film. Tell me about working with Maddie and, uh, going through what I'm assuming is the largest project you've, you've ever, you've ever done. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy. I'll start with that, but um, I don't think they ever are. Yeah, so I anything think, that I think size. when you're making something with that that big of a budget and the studios putting a lot at risk, and we weren't a traditional Marvel movie, we were a Sony movie that happened to be a Marvel uh, character. Marvel, I think, at this point has a real template for how they make films, and Sony was having to kind of invent theirs because it's a new administration. And, um, you know, the Spider-Man stuff had kind of been handed off to Marvel a little bit. So this was their first kind of outside of Spider-Man Marvel movie. And there was a lot of risk and a lot of, you know, concern. But Hardy's an incredible actor. He's really fun to watch on screen. Uh, Maddie's an insanely talented filmmaker who made Iron Man, which was kind of the template for all these movies. And so I felt really lucky. I actually couldn't believe he took the job. Um, but I felt so lucky. I'd shot a commercial with him prior to, uh, to the film, uh, a Subaru spot with a X game star named Bucky Lasik. And, and we, we had a good thing during that shoot. And, uh, so I was really happy that he took, um, actually I hired him for gangster squad, oh, really? but then he bailed on me. Oh. Uh, 
to but, do well, a Darren Aronofsky wait. movie. So, so uh, was it was it Dion Beebe who did? Gangster yeah, Squad? Dion's the Holy greatest. Crap, he's yeah. ama- amazing too, though. It's like you know that. Uh, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I'm sorry you didn't get to work with Maddie, but you got to work with Dion. And his well, stuff is don't like... tell Dion. I hope Dion doesn't listen to this thing because uh, I don't know if he wants to know that he wasn't the first choice. Oh, but uh, okay, do you want to edit this out? Well, well, well. You, you guys can decide. But uh, no, Dion's a big boy. I don't think he has much to worry about. He's got a, a, a golden statue hanging mm-hmm. on his mantle, so he certainly does. Dion's fine. Um, no, Dion's immensely talented. He he's a true gentleman. Just a a great collaborator that was a joy to make that movie and uh, I have to give credit I wanted I was thinking about him on my way here but this man named John Buckley who I'm sure you guys talk about DPs a lot and probably with the DPs you might talk about their gaffers but John Buckley I believe is the greatest living gaffer of all time um, he, he's lit I think at least five movies that either won or been nominated for uh, cinematography and he only works with like the you know he lit Avatar Titanic he, he lit uh, I think Lemony Snicket and he lights a lot of Dion's movies, but he's one of the greatest filmmakers. And I, I happened to be at the Chinese last night where we had, we shot this scene that unfortunately had to be edited out from the film. And I was remembering last night at the Chinese, this epic night. So we had four nights of shooting where we shot down Hollywood Boulevard. I think we were the first movie to shoot inside the Chinese since Blazing Saddles. And then, so two days inside with 350 period extras, there's a shootout inside and it spills out into the courtyard. We're on Hollywood Boulevard, Ryan Gosling, Josh Brolin, Anthony Mackie, all these guys are shooting out with Tommy guns on, I mean, it's like just Incredible. when you want yeah. a kid and you want to make movies, this is the shit that you like someday, hope you're lucky enough to do, like to be at an iconic location, like a, the cathedral to filmmaking in Los Angeles, shooting a you know, gangster movie shootout. Like it, it was a truly a dream come true. But at the end of those four days, so happened that there was an eclipse in happening. And so I said, maybe we should shoot the eclipse. Uh, that could be cool. I don't know where I'll use it, but why don't we shoot the eclipse? And so Dion got um, the camera boys to bring the camera up to the roof of the Chinese theater. And John Buckley brought a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. And me, Dion, and John, and the rest of the camera uh, crew sat on the roof of the Chinese theater watching Eclipse and just telling stories and it, it you know we're there till dawn it was truly to this day one of my favorite uh, filmmaking memories but yeah Dion's the greatest uh, I was very lucky to get to work with him and I was also very lucky to get to work with Maddie on on Venom just because it is tough making those big superhero movies and, and Maddie had done it you know more than once and so having him help navigate um, the waters was was really beneficial. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, that scene, do I recall correctly? Uh, that scene is available as like a, an extra uh, somewhere that you can actually see that the the shootout inside the no, uh, no it, it's it gone will never forever. be released. Oh, yeah, it's it's such a shame because uh, yeah, they had to pull it. Like there was the theater shooting. I remember yeah, it, it was, was just about to come out. It was, and it it was, was a, a month before before the movie called came out i got a call one morning i just stepped out of the shower and the head of marketing for warner brothers said i'm so so sorry i was like what are you talking about she's like oh you don't know and then it was the day that that shooting in colorado where it was the dark night and our trailer actually played prior to the shooting and uh yeah we basically had the same thing where the the bad guys had lured somebody into the chinese to see red river and then they were going to take out the gangster squad by way of just massacring the crowd and great movie scene but unfortunately these days real life is pretty dark and so uh 
we because of the parallels they had to pull a scene and we reshot it and shot a sequence in Chinatown um, and that's a great sequence too that that Chinatown sequence is like you know nail biting action Tommy gun explosions gasoline sure, all that yeah. stuff. so it's yeah. yeah I'm proud of both but yeah there's just nothing like the Chinese theater like to me it, it is our like I think like you know in Paris they have Notre Dame and here we have the Chinese theater like to me it's our our holy ground and and whenever I'm there I just like am awestruck from the history it, the screen's just the best screen to watch a movie on and and so to get to make a movie there was like beyond a dream come true. It it is a spectacular place to see a movie, and anyone can go to it, which is which is wonderful too. I think it it's great that it's uh it's available for all. So, um, Zombieland two, you probably can't say anything about it other than it exists, but uh, but no, uh, I can say that uh, we got the whole gang back together. You, you really which, did. Which IMDb, is, IMDb says uh, Bill Murray's in it again. And well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where they got that information, but I can I can tell you that Emma and Jesse and Woody and Abigail are all back, and then we got some other great actors who are joining the party i think the trailer will probably be out by the time that this podcast drops so people hopefully will be able to check it out but yeah i got to work with the immensely talented chung hoon chung on that movie who's just somebody who's worked going back to old boy that i've been a huge fan of forever and and i think you know uh, the american movies it and uh mural and the dying girl are just really really incredible films and he's he's a singular visionary type of guy and so um, he brought a real look and style to Zombieland 2, which I feel like elevated the film beyond the first one. And he's just also, if you haven't had him on the show, he's the funniest person you'll ever meet. Like, he's truly a comedic genius. Wow. That, and, that usually doesn't go with a DP. That's no, uh, that's, he's, uh, that's he's, uh, he's, he's so funny. He's really just the best. And just, he's by all means the chillest dp i've worked with out of all the guys i've done features with and just such a pleasant joyful person and i i i really hope i'll get to work with him again he's he's amazing so so tell me like when you're working with a dp like on any of these projects uh i quite often the movie is storyboarded it's storyboarded out in advance you've got sort of like a a general framework but maybe not necessarily for for what you're doing but do you work with storyboards is that like a real part i, I do it? for action like whenever we're doing an action sequence whether it's you know like in in the first zombie line if you think about like those opening zombie you know where the fat guys getting chased or the zombie kill of the week or, yeah, or yeah, those yeah, types of yeah. things or the battle at the end i always try and storyboard action um, but beyond that, I don't storyboard much like uh, for, you know, typical dialogue sequences or whatever. I shot list a lot. Um, and, and sometimes you're lucky enough to have the DP involved for sto- storyboarding. Like um, if it's during production, like pre-production, when, pre-production, pre-production, uh, if you're like. We, we all knew about pre-production. That's, <laughs> I'm always doing pre-production. <laughs> well, it's a combination of prep and pre-production, pre-production. Yes. But if you're uh, if you're in some random office at a studio and you're within the, uh, you know, six weeks that they've hired the DP and you're still boarding sequences and you get to have their contribution. But typically it starts long before the DP's involved. Um, and they're always a great thing to have as a resource. And I try and shoot pretty closely to them because I came up in commercials where you board everything and then you just shoot the boards. But you always, you know, are finding additional shots or this doesn't work or we thought about it this way and it's never going to be able to be achieved or we have to trim this whole section because we don't have any time. And so just throw them out. But uh, it's always great for me, at least when it comes to action, 
to have them as a guideline and then you can schedule the day and often you need just specific shots that you know you might not think to get if you hadn't planned them in advance so i really like storyboards but when it comes to like a dialogue scene you know it's unnecessary you might find it on the day yeah I'm not going to ask you to pick favorites of all the people you worked with. You've worked with this massive, uh, this massive group of, of incredibly talented people. Is there someone out there though, that you're hoping to work with? Is there anyone that you're like, kind of like always thought like, Oh, you know what? Or do you feel like you've met your people? You think you've got your team? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, some people like, you know, the Spike Jones of the world, they work with the exact same people every single time. And I've kind of had the opposite experience with the exception of Damien, who was like a consistent for all things prior to features. I've worked with somebody different every time, which has been really cool because it's expanded my filmmaking and certain of those people I'd love to work with again and certain of those people I definitely would not like to work with again. That, that's how it goes. That's, yeah. just, that's just life. And so. I, I think that's okay. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think everybody probably has the same answer, which is Deacons, just because I'm a huge, you know, Coen Brothers fan. So uh, he's somebody who I just admire so much. But um, I don't know if we'd necessarily gel. So I, I, I feel like, at this point, having done a few movies, to me, I'll I'll put personality as much on par with like resume. Sure. Um, sometimes you're lucky, and those two things go super well together. You get the best of both worlds. And other times, maybe they're they're out of balance. So I'm not saying anything against Roger. I would be very very lucky to work with him. Um, but I know that, for example, Chung Hoon Chung, like. It just was a really natural and easy collaboration, and that that was uh, really satisfying. That's awesome. Okay, so so how about you personally? You you've you've tackled all these genres. You've you've made a uh, you've made a a name for yourself in the action comedy world. Is there a type of is there a type of movie that you've always wanted to do, or a type of television show that you haven't gotten to do yet? I don't know if it's uh, you know you're you're interested in the the romantic comedy or you know the uh, the 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 grifter film or I, I love that grifter moment in the original zombie land with, uh, with Emma Stone and Abigail's and Mike white. That's a great scene, but uh, you know, just you, what, what haven't you, what haven't you, uh, what, what do you want to do? What's next? There, there, there's tons I haven't do and I'd be lucky and happy to do. I mean, the romantic comedy I think is kind of like a lost art and they're always so satisfying. If you think back to, you know, there's the princess bride version, which is a heightened version of it to the, you know, more traditional Harry Met Sally, but they're among the greatest movies, or, or even going back to It Happened One Night or, you know, something like It Hot. Like, they're just always great, satisfying movies. So I'd, I'd be thrilled to do that. Um, but for me, actually, the thing I'd, I'd kind of be most excited to do would be a, a smaller indie movie hmm. and hopefully work with Damien and do things just on a smaller scale. I mean, I've done, you know, my past few movies have been pretty big. Um, and so it'd be fun to find a more personal story that we could do on a smaller scale and just have great performances and not have it to rely so much on VFX or, you know, spectacle and just, you know, be a little bit more of, you know, whether it's early down, down and dirty, down and dirty, which is, which is going back to kind of where we started the conversation, like coming up, that's, that's how we made everything was down and dirty. Like, and, and there is such a thrill and electricity to doing things just like we got 15 minutes to get four shots let's figure it out and you just do it and like not to say that doesn't happen on the bigger movies but like I don't know I I, I geek out on that and I really get inspired and I really get excited about it and um, I just honestly would love to make a movie with Damien and some I'd love to like build an ensemble of like some of my favorite actors I've worked with 
over the course of, of the movies or TV shows and build like an all-star cast and shoot something a little bit smaller? Uh, I, I have no doubt that will happen. Uh, uh, Ruben, I think this is a great place for us to leave it. Uh, is there some place on the social media interwebs where people can find you? Is, do you do uh, not Instagrams? Not so much, or yeah. I, I kind of like was, I backed it down. You backed it down. You used to have like a Ruben Fleischer uh, website. Is that Yeah, I, I, I used to really, I was like... A, you were an early adopter. Early adopter of yeah. like all things self-promotional. But um, as it's become... A little bit, uh, I, I guess I value my privacy a little bit more than I once did. Yeah, I, I, uh, understandable. Okay, well, uh, we're going to put some links to some of the stuff that we talked about on our show notes. And thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So that was Ruben Fleischer. Ruben, thank you so much. Uh, it was so much fun. I, I, I can't wait to have you on the show again. And, and next time I get to interview. Yeah, next time. Next time will be Ben. All right. Maybe not. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Ben, moving on, it is time for short ends. You got, yes. a, you got a short end? I do have a short end, and my short end is, uh, I, I, I hate I hate this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, on uh, on the Slate Culture Gab Fest, one of the hosts, Stephen Metcalf, often will be like, I'm going to endorse the, you know, strawberry rhubarb pie that you can only buy in this one place in upstate New York. Yes, and you have to, and you have to buy it there. They don't ship it, you know. Like, so I hate uh, endorsing things that you have to come to LA for. Although I guess we've done it a number of times. We talked about the Stanley Kubrick exhibit, blah blah blah. You know, you know, we're 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 sort of LA centric though here, and I, I, a lot of our listeners are here too. So it's not like it's not like you know we don't pander to our hometown. It's totally fine. So what I wanted to talk about was my hometown genre film festival, which is called Beyond Fest. Whoa. Uh, Beyond Fest, they hold it at the Egyptian Theater, which is on Hollywood Boulevard. And really, the only downside about Beyond Fest is you have to find parking on Hollywood Boulevard or around Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, that's tough. Once you're in the Egyptian Theater, it's gorgeous. You can take Metro. You can. You, you, you can. can. You yeah. can also park at Hollywood and Highland. It's not that expensive. Right? Um, also, they have their own parking lot. Um, they are a genre festival and, uh, I, I would say my favorite film festival bar none in the universe is to this day is fantastic fest in Austin, Texas. And I feel like beyond fest is like our answer to fantastic fest it, fantastic fest. It is genres. I know you're a genre guy. Yeah. That's a genre fest. So yeah, it's horror, it's sci-fi, it's Kung Fu, it's weird animation. It's whatever exploitation. Yes. And so Beyond Fest does that. My friend uh, Yuri Lowenthal pretty much every year is like, hey, you want to come see a, such and such? I'm going to go see it Beyond Fest. And as a result of that, this year I went and saw a film starring Elijah Wood called Come to Daddy. Mm. That is one of those movies that I had no idea where it was going at any moment. And <laughs> Those I, and, are the best movies. And I was on the edge of my seat. Uh, the acting was amazing. Uh, the script was great. It, it, it was funny and dark and weird. And, and, and I, I just never knew uh, what corner it was going to turn. I saw a couple of years ago, they did uh, Fight Club mm. uh, with uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Yeah. In attendance. Uh, and I think they also had the guy who wrote the script for the movie. Um, uh, my friend Zuby Muhammad, you know Zuby. Zuby's the best. Uh, uh, called me up a few years ago and he's like, hey man, you want to go see this movie? It's got Jake Gyllenhaal in it. And I went and saw Nightcrawler. Nice. Walked in completely not knowing anything about what I was about to see. My pick, which for sh- what should have won the Oscar that year? I agree. I thought Nightcrawler was amazing. So Beyond Fest, I think, is like one of the best programmed. It's, it's not really a festival that uh, I don't think people like submit their films to it. I think they curate it. 
and present it. They bring in the filmmakers. They do a Q&A, Elijah Wood and uh, the director, whose name is Ant Timpson, were both there to do the Q&A. Hmm. They do a lot of, they do them year round, but right around now they, they do a ton of programming at the Egyptian. And it, it's just, I've never seen anything at Beyond Fest that I didn't, not just like, I've never seen anything there that I did not walk out and say, fuck yeah, I'm so glad I saw this. Um, they did the 4K restoration of Dario Argento's Suspiria a couple years ago. Nice. That, that blew my mind. My friend Graham Skipper's film um, Sequence Break played there. And I think this week, Joe Bagos's VFW and Bliss, which is its own short end, frankly, uh, total trippy, hallucinatory, insane, c- crazy pants vampire story. They're doing a double feature and they've got a bunch of the stars coming in, in for that. So uh, if you're in L.A., uh, run, don't walk to Beyond Fest. Wow. Okay. Well, um, uh, that's uh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, that's a fantastic, fantastic. plug. Fantastic. Yes. No. 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 A fantastic fest. One no, might no say. No pun intended. So. Uh, any, anyway, um, what my short end is going to kind of play on your short end then, because uh, and we I know we do this sometimes unintentionally, but because uh, we don't share what our short ends are. Not just, no. For not those a, of you playing the home game. <laughs> Uh, Vidiots. You familiar with Vidiots? Vidiots? Okay, so here we're talking something local. We're talking something just LA, something sort of insidery, but screw you, Branson, Missouri. That's what you're saying. (laughs) That's exactly. You know, Sheboyga. You're you're sorry. There's just no. no, Yeah, this is. Yeah, this is not gonna. If you're in LA, and a lot of filmmakers come to LA at various points in or times in their lives, uh, there are a few institutions, and one of them has been Vidiots. Well, long after the blockbusters were gone, Vidiots remained, and they remained in part uh, because of a huge influx of cash from Megan Ellison. And uh, she's, of course, famous for her Annapurna uh, pictures. Her company is uh, is all over the place these days. And uh, Vidiots, which almost maybe felt like charity, but they're, now a bunch of other people have gotten involved, and they are moving Vidiots from its uh, hovel of a location in Santa Monica, where they somehow managed to pack 50,000 titles in there, to a new theme theater uh, space, co-space theater and video store in Eagle Rock, which let me tell you, home of the hipsters, they're going to love this. So oh, yeah. uh, that the Eagle Theater was built in the 1930s and it's like a 200 seat theater and it's going to have this incredible video store. Uh, I saw the uh, the camp superstar Harvey Sid Fisher perform live at Vidiots. I don't know if you know who Harvey Sid Fisher is. I do not. Oh my God. So that is a, that's a YouTube rabbit hole for you to enjoy later. All right. But uh, I will say that Vidiots always was doing cool stuff. They were doing cool in-store activities. They had a very active community. And I will tell you that uh, celebrities, industry people, everyone went to Vidiots. If you're on the West side, that was the place to get your movies. Even in the, you know, the, in the later eras when video stores were passe, that's where you went to. Now you need more than just a few celebrities to like keep your doors open. You need to have everyone going there. And when video stores are going away, it makes it a little bit harder, but I have a theory and I'm going to share that theory right now, which is that the internet has killed off crappy businesses and good businesses alike, but businesses that are truly good are coming back. And I believe that things like Vidiot's really, really fantastic community sort of supported beloved enterprises will return. And I think that this is sort of like the first one that you're going to see. So uh, question, what are they going to do in the theater? They're going to do screenings. They're going to do performances. Really? Oh yeah. They're going to have special events and Q and A's. It's going to be a whole, a whole thing. The whole theater is being redone, new projection, new seats, you name it. It's all coming together. All right. Yeah, and and I'm sure it's going to be a revival. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of stuff. I don't think it'll be first run, but it should be fantastic. Well, Vidiots, when you want to do a revival of Alien Raiders, call me. 
<laughs> I, I hope someone from videos actually does listen to us because uh until i moved away that that was my place long, long after the point when uh you know most people stopped going to video stores i was i was still going there i remember uh this isn't videos related but i remember my wife and i were driving down a street not far from us maybe two years ago and we saw video hut which, yeah video hut yeah which was, i know where that is which used to be very close to our house and then it closed and they had moved up the street and we like stopped and it was it was sort of like uh, I don't know. It was weird because we'd already kind of transitioned into the Netflix, Amazon, Redbox era. You can't get everything that way. In fact, you can't get quite a few things that way. No, it's totally true. And and I was like, wow, this is cool. Like, I miss this. I I, I feel like and this is probably uh, this this might be a, a good close focus for us. Um, but I feel like we're losing our relationship to our media collection. And we're kind of like all just kind of siphoning off of the community shit pile. And that's okay. Like I, I, I do think that like there's a lot of great stuff on Amazon. There's a, gr- a lot of great stuff on Netflix. I love Shutter personally. I watched, I watched Canopy last night. It was fantastic. Yeah, those are all great. But I feel like there was a time in my life where like I remember uh, when I was a big Pink Floyd fan, finding out that Roger Waters had made an album with Ron Geeson called Music from the Body in like 1972. And I went to Wax Tree Records and special ordered it. And then like two months later it came in because it was only you know, available overseas on, on LP in England. And, uh, and I bought it and it was like this special prized possession of mine today. You just go on, you know, what Spotify or Apple music or whatever you're on and look it up and play it. And there it is. Bye bye. Well, I think the way things are getting fractured and you're right. I feel, I feel like there is uh, more of a close focus uh, discussion to be had here. And so maybe I'll table this really quickly, but yeah, I feel that, uh, with all the fighting and licensing, that is happening now between the different streaming agencies and new players that are getting into the space. It's going to be harder to find what it is that you're looking for. And most of these players are going to try to separate themselves by their new and original programming, not their back catalog. It's true. And there's an awful lot of back catalog stuff, both in the music world and in the, the cinema and television world that people want to watch. Copy. All right. So uh, that about wraps us up for today. Hey, uh, Ben, where, where can people find you? Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and suggest you go to benrockonline.com and uh, you can click on all my social meds there. And you know what? I'm going to just throw a shout out again for the podcast. You know, you, you, it's great if you guys want to go look me up at Hot Rod Cameras or any of my social media, but look up the podcast. Please look up the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, like like our Facebook page. We we've, we're over a thousand likes on Facebook. We've got 255 followers on Instagram. We have these very, very low numbers because we came to this all late. We were only concerned about... Wow, that's a lot of uh, uh, alerts there. So, you know, go go to our Facebook page, go to our Instagram. We we came to all this stuff late. We didn't think there was any real importance. We were doing a podcast. We weren't doing Facebook pages. We're just keeping it real, man. We are totally keeping it real. Okay, we kept it sort of real. Okay, yes. it's a little bit real. There's a smidgen of realness. Yes. <laughs> anyway, a schmear, a schmear of real. You know, we're, we're real people. I, I ran into someone today, actually, who said they knew the podcast. They didn't know me, but they knew the podcast, which is wonderful. So It's always weird when I run into a podcaster and meet them in real life when I'm used to hearing their voice in my head and then I'm talking to them. It's super odd. I sound exactly like I sound here. Uh, I usually sound a lot better, but right now my head is full of <laughs> mucus. Uh, uh, all right, Ben, uh, let's, thank, let's thank some people. All right, well, let's start by thanking our amazing producer, Alana Cody. Thank you. Let's thank our editorial staff, Abby and Ben. They're awesome. And uh, we'll thank 
Kays, who's not going to listen to Kays our Kays you go to musicbykays.com and uh, tell him how awesome he is and that we're trolling him. And that is it for episode 48 of the Cinematography Podcast. We'll see you one away from 50. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.